0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rose.
1: And we're back. We are. And unfortunately, already seated because today's topic is emerging risks. <laughs> and I was so tempted to start with an empty chair and then just emerge and just be like, <laughs> emerging risks. That's a bit, that would have been too cheesy, even for us, mm. I think. We so. could be like, Cordy
0: cut me in and (laughs) fade me in like i want to be a spinning newspaper that gets larger and (laughs) gradually reaches full screen like a batman like a batman (laughs) from the 1970s or something and And (laughs) (laughs) brilliant Um, but yes yes, emerging risks exciting Uh, topic it is i I think when when we we spend so much of our time in in this industry not only in this in the podcast discussing it but the industry evaluating and assessing is like the mega categories right it's property cat in big you know regions and it's it's big casualty understood risks Um, marine aviation things that we've had for ages but there's this real growth and there's a ton of opportunity in areas that don't really have as much business yet or there's as the names as it says as it says on the tin emerging risk categories Um, cyber being the sort of most recent one to have emerged but there's obviously a lot more
1: Yeah, I think in thinking about this episode, a number of questions were immediately raised. Does emerging risks equal emerging products? Is insurance a product that is bought or a product that is sold? Is reinsurance a product that is bought or sold? I think it's bought personally. But I think it's harder to say Mm. for some of these new categories where we haven't quite figured out how to match a demand for risk with potentially people who might supply it. Or on the other hand, an overeager set of suppliers looking for something to sell or even a way to create nascent demand.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the buying versus is it bought or is it sold piece is an important one to start with. Um, I think businesses are more successful when they have a product that's being bought rather than they're saying, I built a thing, don't you want it? Right. And I, I think a lot of insurance has fallen foul of that in the past where they try to force products into people who don't really maybe have the need for it or they have a hard, very hard time articulating the benefit in a way that um is sufficiently compelling for a buyer um they've resorted to scare tactics in some geographies which feels a bit lazy but it's it's like if this disaster happens don't you want your family protected it's this very um so I, I think we've done a disservice in some of that selling tactics but with emerging risks it's a bit different because it's more of a how do you think about this risk that you have as a business Aon does a bunch of work about this around this don't they with risk assessments or emerging risk profile assessments for big things. Yeah,
1: as, especially on the insurance side every year or so. I think a, th- a few of them do something similar, but mm. a, a report on which risks are uninsurable at the moment, as in you can't really get any kind of coverage uh, as a customer, which ones are only partially insurable and you know the the important bit you still can't really insure mm-hmm. uh, and which ones have we finally conquered uh, and, and mapping that against... Surveys of executives, for example, and saying, mm-hmm. what keeps you up at night? Yeah, And I think distressingly for the industry, I, on one hand, the list of things that are keeping up senior execs at night rarely maps to what they are able to buy protection against. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that sorry situation for the insurance industry as well, I, we've seen the overall expenditure on insurance relative to GDP gradually declining Mm. over the past 50 years or so so uh, typically the relevance of insurance as a means of helping CEOs sleep better Mm. (laughs) has waned
0: it's a good word isn't it I haven't used the word waned in a long time (laughs) it doesn't make it into most sentences normally Um, that's a really interesting point though because Whilst, whilst there's certainly alignment between reinsurance spend to GDP as an assessment as to penetration, you could also make the case that as risk gets better understood, and better priced, and more easily distributed, and everything else, that we're slowly stripping out inefficiencies in the insurance model, and therefore, I mean, there's a there's a bottom there somewhere. I don't near I won't means to pretend that I have a, a way to understand what that bottom would be, but. There, it might be interesting that improved efficiency and distribution and claims payments and and everything else is helping to reduce the spend to GDP, even if it's not reducing insurance penetration in a developed economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that was an interesting angle that that just was a, a side tangent as, yeah, as yeah. you said that. Um, but but more importantly, in in an earlier episode, you talked about the ability for us to. Use new points of data to understand risk, and I think that the idea of here's risks that are not yet insurable. It doesn't mean that they can't be insured. It it sort of means with the current state of play, there's not enough. There would be no way by which we could sufficiently measure it, sufficiently track it, sufficiently evaluate it in order to provide a product around it. But as we're leveraging technology in um, sort of increasingly diverse ways. I think we're beginning to sort of unpack those things and those surveys are the sort of five of the top 10 are the similar every year, right? So everyone's aware of like, okay, if that's what's on people's minds. Like how can we help solve that pain point? And I think it's interesting because I, I, I
1: will come on to the technology aspect here and how this could maybe shake things up a little bit, but typically these emerging risks being hard is what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that, if you go to some really standard consulting models, I mean, not standard, they were very clever when they were first thought up, but now quite well-practiced uh, models like the BCG product lifecycle and matrix kind of combo, mm-hmm. I, you look at emerging products and emerging risks kind of as the same thing here. Uh, emerging demand is basically what we're talking about. Uh, how do you build a product initially? Typically, very high upfront investment very low profitability, it's R&D cost. Mm -hmm. How do you create something that was not there before and hope that it finds a market? That kind of product, typically, when it's first launched, has a very low penetration in the market uh, and very low growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't exist. And that is something we call a question mark, typically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not many insurance companies are willing to take risks uh, in general, without data, without historical underwriting years to look at Mm -hmm. on these so-called question marks i let alone willing to behave like r&d heavy companies like pharmaceuticals etc and spend Mm -hmm. millions or even billions on developing new question marks but the rewards can be really huge i because the the sort of subsequent category to question marks is stars Mm. and the idea of a star is is that it's a really low penetration market where there's hardly any players but there's really high growth i think we saw this in the early days of you know standard terrorism products and cyber products where suddenly people have realized whoa there's loads of demand for this nobody's supplying it we can charge (laughs) pretty much whatever we want because people need this they want it they've only just realized they need it and we're the only provider that offers it yeah i and if you can catch on to one of these stars you're on a rocket ship from that mm-hmm. point onwards in terms of sales grabbing market share grabbing loyalty that can then be quite sticky going forwards i think the problem is is that you can then get to a position quite quickly where those products become standardized especially in a uh, subscription markets where you need many players to be part of a, a risk especially a new risk i mm-hmm. uh, you very quickly get to a kind of commoditization period where growth starts to slow down. The market kind of is what it is. Penetration is very high yeah. uh, at that point. And you're stuck with what's called a cash cow. So there's loads of money coming yeah. in. But actually, you're really fighting for margin at that point. It starts to get quite competitive. Uh, and it can get to the point where eventually you're actually seeing very low uh, profitability to the point where people start withdrawing from the market. Penetration reduced. Nobody actually wants to write this thing anymore. Mm. Uh, probably a bit like the... Uh, DNA, I think, has gone through some cycles a bit like this yeah. in recent years. But it's a bit like, a, that's a, a what we call a dog, something yeah. nobody really wants to be in anymore. And people are trying to offload themselves out of that class and look yeah. for the next big thing yeah. instead to allocate capacity towards. Yeah. I think that applies just as much to the insurance world.
0: Yeah, I think it does as well. I, I think we're in a good spot there because, this sort of, these these large organizations are very clear about what pain points they have, what keeps these sort of Fortune 500 executives up at night. So when you think about product development from a, is this a painkiller or is this a vitamin, this this executive community is going, this is a pain. Like, if you can give us a product that kills this pain, yep. like, we will pay for it. So I think there's this real ambition there to go, okay, what is what might we do there? But, but you hit the nail on the head that, if it takes a lot of energy to build this product out, who's willing to do that investment? And even if you have – and there's some companies that do this in their innovation units and similar. Um, even if you have it where you're partnering with a couple big players early on to build this out, even though they're getting their pain point solved, they don't want to do that for free always. They might want a bit of a take on that business or they might want you know, a, a carrot or something – as a result of all that hard work as well. So you begin to make it where it's still hard to innovate and and create that product from scratch because you need collaboration with that end client, at least the first couple to get that product into the market and have it, you know, meet the needs that they have. Um, But it's it's not nearly as clear as to who's going to foot the bill and as is that bill sufficiently worth, even though all these executives say this is a big pain point, if they all bought it, would it be a Hundred million dollar product for you or would it be, you know, a few yeah. million dollars, and, and in which case, all that R and D is for naught. And
1: it's it's super interesting, and and I think the latency with which the insurance market has addressed these emerging demands from their customers has actually led to a scenario where instead of individual insurers developing new products, uh, which has happened in pockets, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, there's oh for sure. Players like CFC, for example, who've got fabulous reputations for, here's a product that nobody realized could be huge and, yeah. and really took it and ran with it. I, but what's happened in the absence of that is we had things like the InsurTech movement I, and also things like the Lloyd's Lab here in London being set up whereby they had whole cohorts scouted and researched to tackle certain problems. Mm. And then venture capital has come in to support the furthering of data sets and approaches and methodologies that would enable capture of sufficient information to enable a class to emerge. Yeah. But what that brings with it, because of it being a, an external partnership, is a additional uh, person who wants some of the upside, right? Mm-hmm. So, I Which can work really well. I mean, we, we talked in the past about the brilliance of SAS and everything costing much less because it's multiplied. Yeah. I, You've got many people to pay for a product rather than just one insurer. But I, because insurers, I think, haven't put their own money into things a lot of the time, or pooled it, ironically, in an effective way. I. It's meant that, for example, we, we talked about cloud outage mm. I, insurance. Uh, that's a startup that's coming in and doing that with venture capital money. And if they've got the way of doing that and no insurers have, they're probably going to want to charge lots of money to those insurers, yeah, in order to access that type of business. We won't necessarily see any one insurer emerging as the champion of a new product class there, yeah. except maybe the partners, the early partners of that yeah. new product class.
0: Do you think? Um, do you think that the the multi-party in the in the value chain slows this process a little bit? In which, in which I mean, if an insurer gets really interested in deploying a new product into the market. But it's it's not very far until they go. We don't want all of that risk, even if it's pre-star mm-hmm. status in the in the BCG model, even if it's just beginning to grow. There's a real reticence to sort of just therefore assume everything because they yeah. still they still want to mm-hmm. learn. And as a result, they they will then require support from their reinsurance partners. But that also means educating and getting those partners to buy into that, which you can already see a slowing of innovation. Mm-hmm. Just as that you need you're reliant on a few parties wanting to go on this journey together. And when you work with enterprises like the insurance and reinsurance industry, that just doesn't move very quickly. I, I think it comes down to a
1: a mis I don't want to say a misalignment, it's almost an absence of appropriate shareholder class mm-hmm. in our space. So if you think about insurance company shareholders, I typically what they're looking for is a very predictable, stable return. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're looking for that company that gets ninety eight percent combined ratio and improves that further with an investment return every year very predictably and all the volatility thrown out the back to reinsurance companies. Um, So that might make you think, okay, so maybe insurance companies aren't the ones to experiment with these unknown products that could have very volatile results and very high upfront costs. Maybe that's the reinsurers uh, because the reinsurers like really volatile portfolios. But then again, a big part of the reinsurer philosophy is that they take on massive volumes of portfolio risk Such that they're able to hedge between Mm -hmm. volatile parts of portfolios. And with any question mark type new emerging product, typically the volume is negligible. You know, they're they're saying, we think we can sell 10 of these in the first year, and that would be a massive achievement, and it's not worth the reinsurer getting out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. That type of thing. So there is, I think, only really this sort of early stage seed type venture angel kind of investment bed for these new products at the moment. and I think it has worked quite well in many instances to provide parties who are willing to take quite a big risk on a new idea, even though it isn't going to be big initially, uh, even if it is going to be very risky initially. Uh, So it's fallen out of the insurance industry and gone into a more generalist, uh, high risk, low volume kind of market instead. Yeah, uh, it, point of view.
0: Yeah, it's it's super interesting, right? Because you have it where the 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 inherent characteristics of the insurance company make them really avoidant of R and D cost mm. with no real return, and then it begins to become, as you said, like every large organization. There's a reason that Google doesn't build tons of new products. And just waits for someone to be interesting, and then buys them. Because Google investing in building something that's going to make them three million dollars a year does not worth is not worth anybody's time.
1: Which is why they keep discontinuing my hardware.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but it's the same thing here. If if you went this insurance product, we could sell, we could make fifty million dollars a year selling this. Munich Reed literally doesn't blink to that. Like. Yeah. If, like the turnover of an organization, the big reinsurers is so substantial that like fifty million on like gross into our written premium is is is, is I'm, I'm not going to spend that, but I have to employ some underwriters to look at it. We have to update our tech stack to supply it. The amount of effort is, is becomes too burdensome if it's not that big. And, and even then, you think about that
1: the other way around: fifty million, and then and I I took that number as revenue so premium rather yeah. than profit right because profit would be then potentially a hundred times that or yeah. 50 times that depending on what kind of margin they're doing um, but for a startup or for a, a new emerging emerging risk tackler mm-hmm. of some kind 50 million what depending on what you're selling I you know, presumably you're not selling 50 million pound policies yeah. or even 500 hundred thousand pound policies yeah you you're talking serious volumes yeah. of you know maybe it's five thousand thousand pound but that even to get to that stage yeah it's quite a a big leap for any company and probably actually what's going to happen is you're going to have a 200 percent loss ratio until yeah. you figure out the price yeah uh, so yeah interesting
0: yeah but th- these are the things that when you look at the emerging classes and how we think about what risks that emerge next there's a number of ways that they solve for this right it's it's identifying where there's a sort of a white-hot center. There's a need that's emerging that people want to tackle. Um, oftentimes, I do think you're right. It's startups kind of going, well, we could solve it, and then just get some capacity support and then chip away at it. And that's interesting enough, and you align the shareholder class enough that it begins to be something of interest there. You need and those then, people who are either voluntarily or involuntarily unemployed to take <laughs> on these difficult challenges. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then over time, it becomes something where, You know, Munich goes, this is super interesting. We just want to buy this and hold it in-house or Swiss or Hanover, whomever does something similar. Or it sits there running very happily as a technology company that sells insurance products and is worth, you know, a billion pounds or something.
1: So So we'd be remiss not to spend a bit of time in this episode talking about some of our favorite new emerging risk classes and dreaming up some that are yet to exist. So uh, what comes to mind when you think about those areas of the market that are Tragically unaddressed at the moment.
0: um I think there's there's always been a lot of attention into healthcare, mm-hmm. and I think we talked about this on um, the partnerships piece, but like stuff that Gaya is doing, you know, identifying areas in healthcare that have been sort of ignored and haven't been covered by the traditional health sector. But th- you know, you want something, but there's not a chance at all. You know, fertility treatment, for example, mm-hmm. will will work, but it's expensive. Yep. If you do it three or four, like it's all of these kinds of things. I think that's a really, really interesting one. I think for me, that one feels very personal. Like it, it resonates with a, a human element of me, versus, um, you know, what keeps the you know the CEO of GM of GM or you know Daimler up at night. Interest, like, but I, I don't feel like the profits of a massive organization resonate quite as much as you know human experience in that same way. Which I think why healthcare gets such an interest. But there's obviously certainly Mm. opportunity in those other sectors as well. No, absolutely. I I was just trying to think
1: of a matrix to express this within because I I think healthcare is a really important fundamental thing that we look at and say that's something that should be insured. Why isn't it? available more easily more affordably etc i and i was thinking in a similar line when we talk about as we did on the recent news episode the insurance protection gap i are mostly when we talk about the protection gap referring to those those coverages that we expect in many very developed economies to be mandatory or bought by you know an overwhelming majority of the population your homeowners your auto insurance Mm things that it'd be very strange if you didn't buy them because you'd be exposing yourself to a a massively unaffordable risk uh, that you could avoid for a a relatively low cost uh, or that you're legally obliged to pay to avoid. Um, But actually, I think one of the biggest emerging risk areas as a category, as a sort of area of this imaginary visual that one day we'll publish, uh, is those risks which are smaller Mm -hmm. but still annoying and still, you know, setbacks to financial goals and financial well-being, but that would require too much effort at the moment due to inefficiencies in the the sales process or the claims process or too much uncertainty in their processes for people to actually take the time or to have the trust in uh, as things that they would actually go out and buy and claim on proactively. I think one beacon of hope in this space recently has been the growing up- uptake of what we call parametric products. Mm-hmm. The concept here being, you know, that you can effectively guarantee a payout based on uh, certain parameters, hence mm-hmm. the name being met. Uh, so flight cancellation insurance can be made parametric on the basis uh, that I think AXA made a product ages ago called Fizzy or something. But uh, Yeah, it sounds yeah that. Right, yeah, yeah. t- uh, as yeah. one example, but... Everybody knows that the flight has been cancelled. It's on departure boards. It's very available via APIs by now. So if you've got a ticket to be on that plane and that plane gets cancelled, you shouldn't have to claim. You should just get a payout and that that purchase should be a no-brainer at point of sale, right? And then that's a hassle you as a customer don't have to worry about. It's low severity Mm -hmm. as a risk. You're not going to go bankrupt because your flight was cancelled. But if it was a expensive flight and there's not a good suitable available the cost is very frustrating yeah but likewise you're not going to go out of your way to compare providers and try and figure out how it works and then after it happens try and manage a claims process to get the funds back in your account to buy something else yeah there's a huge number of products in that category of small things on which data is widely available as to what has
0: happened with certainty uh, that i think is greatly underutilized at the moment yeah and it's a combination of finding distribution yep in the best way and and leveraging it because i recently had a flight canceled for a similar reason um and again it was solved for but it took like two and a half months to get like my 300 pounds back yeah didn't wasn't impacting my life but it was annoying that it was on my to-do list to like chase this thing for like as long as it was Mm. um and if you had it where it's like yep as I'm leaving the airport and whether you could even embed it with because a lot of like credit cards will come with health or travel insurance embedded just make that built by one of these things wherever you book the flight on that card it links it up applies it and then you immediately get your 250 pounds the second you sort of de plane like these things make it super interesting. I also think when you look at how technology will have an impact here. It feels a lot like how much of, um, like Africa, for example, skipped the traditional um, telephony grid and just went right to cellular. Mm. You could do something similar where they've skipped the traditional infrastructure of the original insurance supply chain. And it just goes, yeah, well, when I buy fertilizer, it comes with a parametric product that if there's a drought of this, I get four times the price of this bag of fertilizer. It's all just embedded. Like parametric tells me when there's a drought like and i don't do anything more it's like included there and covered right this I this idea that. where it moves yeah. out of the way and, and i growth. think the industry is really paying attention to those things and you're right the existing model doesn't make it work financially there's too many things that need to be done but if you use these these opportunities to leverage, leverage technology in a way that that gets stripped away and you're only working with the pure costing of it then it begins to be something that can be very interesting.
1: I would love to leave
0: us on that final
1: note for the episode because your leapfrog analogy matches our green background (laughs) and also gives the listeners lots to think about as they wait for the next episode of the Reinsurance Podcast. We'll see you there.